BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, busting the echo chambers of culture, politics, and business. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Hey, TDR fans. It's Fede again, your faithful producer of the Diversity Remix. This week, we have another super interesting guest on the show, writer, producer, actor, and mental health activist, Bobby Spears Jr. The guys break a bunch of things down with Bobby, from his childhood growing up in a family within the mental health industry to the stigma of mental health on black communities, to how Bobby's work as a writer and documentarian have been shaped by his experiences, including in his latest book, Bedlam, The Life and Mind of Earl Sedgwick. Also remember to stay tuned for Curator Cringe, where Charlie and Jesus get Bobby's perspective on a bunch of controversy, including TikTok's mental health woes, to the NFL's football IQ problems, to Governor Ron DeSantis' frustration with high school kids wearing masks in Florida. It's a roller coaster show this week, so without further ado, here's Charlie, Jesus, and our guest Bobby Spears Jr. in this week's episode of TDR. Bobby Spears Jr., welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I so good it. to have you, man. It's great, especially in person. By the way, I'm always up with him. I'm like, we do some of these things real. We just had uh, Gil uh, Perez from uh, the new uh, from the Batman last week. You know, the one that came out on Friday. Wow. And we had to do it remote, and it, it was a great conversation. But yeah, you always have this like yeah, I was like a slight delay. Just, it was like just, a little bit thing. of that. You know, you know, you're you're like a filmmaker. You get this stuff. It's yeah. like you need to have a little bit of that. In person, in person always better. It's right. it's 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 personal, and you're right. When you're on Zoom, you kind of talk over each other because you're there's a little bit of lag and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's, it makes it difficult. But this that's is way the thing: better. is the talking over is actually like a natural conversation. You know what I'm saying? Like even just the little bits and bobs. But when you're on the Zoom, it's like a walkie-talkie. You got to yes. wait. It's like over, right? You know, and so it's a little it's a little stilted. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you just got back, huh? I just got back from Philadelphia. Where I was born and raised. Nice. Uh, I was there for a week, uh, handling a few, few odds and ends. I'm still a consultant in the healthcare business, mental healthcare business. So nice. every so often, I gotta uh, put the laptop in writing away and go be a businessman. Sure. Know? We were just talking about Bedlam too. Is that? I mean, every author is inspired, right, for like mm-hmm. their personal story. But how much of this, like, where's the fact and fiction line? It's a very interesting question you asked me. I was just talking to my publisher last night, and uh, I just watched a, a documentary on the plane over um, Roadrunner about Anthony Bourdain. Oh, I didn't oh, know his. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah. I didn't know his whole story. I didn't realize that he wasn't necessarily like the largest chef in the world before he wrote uh, Kitchen, Con- Kitchen Confidential, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know he wrote a, uh, a, a, a nonfiction account of behind the scenes in these kitchens in, in New York City. And I see how to say, I asked my publisher, should we have published Bedlam as nonfiction? And he said, you know, nonfiction does make more sense sometimes. It may, they make more sales because people want to hear true stories. Yeah. So to answer your question, I would say Bedlam is 100% true. Mm. Okay. Everything in that book occurred. Mm-hmm. Now, it didn't all necessarily occur to me. Right. Um, right. The main character is definitely based on me. Um a lot of my life and my experiences are in that main character. Certain aspects I pulled from other um, providers I knew or people I knew in my life sure. um, and put it into Earl as well. 
Um, but to answer your question, like fact and fiction, uh, it's a hundred percent fact, mm-hmm. but you know, it's right. not a hundred percent like a biography or an autobiography right, 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 right. per se. You're attributing things to a variety of, of characters who may or may not have actually experienced those particular things, but the thing itself happened. Absolutely. You know, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And your family was involved in this business for a long time, right? Yeah. So Earl's backstory is, is a lot. And is by it, the way, the book is Bedlam, the Life and Mind of Earl Sedgwick, just FYI. We'll put all this stuff in the show notes, but just to make yeah, sure, sure the folks sure. know. Yeah. yeah, Earl's background is, is similar to mine. Yeah, my, my family absolutely started the business uh, in the early 80s. Um, my mother did uh, work in, in, in the suburbs of Philadelphia as a caretaker for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, she realized that, you know, she's doing a lot of the heavy lifting and they're doing a lot of counting money and she could mm. probably figure out how to count money. Mm. Um, yeah. So my dad was in the government uh, working as a park ranger. Uh, and so his experience with, you know, government, um, paperwork and all that kind of stuff, he was the back office and my mom was out front doing the work and they, they combined as this like a mega force to build this huge business. And at one point in time, they grew where we grew to one of the largest privately owned, uh, residential care facility owners in, in Pennsylvania. They, they had maybe four or five hundred beds under their under their roof at one point and in what time. Kind of, wow. What kind of folks? Like, I mean, wide swath of, of humanity or like focused in a... A lot of military. Like, what was the background? In the beginning, my mother focused on the elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as, as the business grew, it's just the nature of the beast in Philadelphia specifically that mental health was a huge need. Um, mm-hmm. People would, would need care because their family members couldn't take care of them. They'd be on the street. They'd be in an apartment building. And the landlord would say, hey, this person is flushing chicken or cooking chicken in their toilet, which actually happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh. So these caseworkers get called and these people don't have a lot, these people don't have a lot of money. Yeah. So businesses like my mother and father's and not mine at the, you know, at this point in time, um, were, were grown because these people didn't have anywhere else to go or else to be on the street. Sure. Um, so they have you know, a, a supplemental security income check. Sure. And it's yeah, not yeah. a lot of money. So you can't go into a nursing home, which costs mm-hmm. $3,000 a month or $5,000 a month. You don't have any property, et cetera. So you, you go in these personal care boarding homes, which are really a catch-all. So again, it started as el- started out as elderly, but then it grew into more of a mental health situation. And honestly, when I came into the business, um, I'd grown up in it, and I loved dealing with the mentally disabled because mm. they were oftentimes younger, they were more interesting. Mm. And as a young child in our, growing up in our business, I'd seen a lot of people pass on. You know, you grow attached to somebody, sure. and they're like 80, 90 years old, and you know, you come home from school one day, and they're no longer with you or you, right. you know, I've, I've definitely found people myself in, you know, state of, uh, not here anymore. I guess you know, it has to be super jarring, man. As a kid, you're seeing that all the time. Or is it a thing like where it just becomes part of live with that circle of life kind of situation where you know that people that come in at a certain stage of life, they're in that last leg and it's about just yeah. being there with them. Like, like how, how does that work for you? And maybe maybe talk about like when was the first time you really recall it like oh, kind of hitting you? Oh, I know. At, at a, at a, okay, hey, absolutely. I rem- remember just like I, yesterday. I was probably in fifth grade, maybe fourth grade, maybe somewhere around yeah. there. And my job so like after nine. something like that, like nine yeah. years old, right? So I recall my job was to go upstairs. We had a, they had a small home at that point in time. It was only about you know maybe five bedrooms, and they had you know maybe. 10 clients, maybe nine clients. And my job was to go wake people up for lunch, for meal times when I was there. So I remember, and I, rem- I don't wow. remember the woman's name, but I was going upstairs and, you know, yeah. hey, it's dinner time, dinner time, dinner time, that kind of stuff. And I remember the woman didn't move and I looked very closely and I didn't check her pulse. I did, wasn't that aware right. back then, but I knew she was not coming to dinner. Yeah. And so then I went downstairs and my mother was like serving people in the, in the dining room and I was tugging on her, her 
shirt or what have you. And I was like, yo, mommy, I need to talk to you. Mommy, I need to talk to you. And she's like, why? She's trying to shoot me away. And so I, she finally acquiesced and I brought her into the kitchen. I said, uh, I don't remember the woman's name, but let's say her name is Miss Jackson. I was like, you know, mommy, Miss Jackson's not coming to dinner. She's like, what do you mean? She's looking at me very strangely. She said, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And she always would remark about how um, calm I was in those situations. And you asked me, was it very jarring? Um, as a child, I, I don't know why I was like this. It, it didn't affect me. I kept a lot of things inside. I bottled a lot of things up. And um, not until I got older mm. and started to reflect on my life and the choices I had made and mistakes mm-hmm. and, and who I was as a person did I start to start to unravel all the things that I'd seen. And right. it started to start to hit me like, you know, I didn't live a normal life. Like not many nine-year-olds have seen sure, dead bodies. Yeah, not yeah. many kids see this stage of life or these kind of people. Yeah. Um, so as when I'm in my forties, I started to realize, yeah, I probably was kind of screwed up a little bit mm. by seeing some of these things. Did, and did any of these experiences kind of reflect themselves in some way later on for you? Cause look, whenever we talk to, when you hear like typically creative people, mm-hmm. a lot of my like really fucked up past. Like when you think about their life, like there's things that happen in their life that make them, there's a lot of emotion that kind of gets caught up there that makes them really good creatively later on. Did, did that happen to you? Did some of that sort of then impact how you viewed the world, even if to your point, it wasn't really like conscious at the time, but now that you reflect and look back, maybe some of that kind of influence decision you made, kind of career choices, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't, and I wasn't really conscious of it. Uh, I don't know if those experiences turned me into a creative mm-hmm. or was I able to draw from it creatively because I naturally, right, right. So I, I, I yeah, can't yeah. really answer that question. Right, right. I don't know. There's a wealth of stories and, and emotions that I can draw from for, any a number any number of situations because of what I've seen and what I've heard and mm-hmm. you know a lot of people just don't know that these facilities and these people even exist for sure you know so it, and, it, and the whole concept of death too Bobby I mean that's it's like it's a trippy thing too because when you're you know I, I spent a lot so my wife and I run uh, a, a nonprofit for a long time that works with homeless families mm-hmm. and a lot of that work is dealing with people in the at the kind of margins right. Mm-hmm. And this idea of people who might be in these homes and going through these experiences is, is itself kind of a margin experience, right? But the whole idea of being a kid and interacting with the reality of people coming and going and dying, you know what I mean? And ex- experiencing that, it's a natural part of life, but our culture doesn't our, – all, all, our culture looks at death and illness and all of that in this very kind of suspicious way, right? In mm-hmm. mental health too, there's a bunch of stigma attached to it. So it's like – it's this thing that's out there that we don't really interact with. And you got that experience from a very young age of kind of demystifying some of that because it happens to everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I like to say that we're, you know, this, our, like you said, our society kind of pushes it to the side. I personally believe that we're all mentally disabled in, mm. some, in, in, some, in some capacity. You know, I feel like we're all experiencing a, a reality that's our very own. And so what makes our reality any more valid than theirs kind of thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to wonder sometimes, like, you know, I'd see my clients talking to, to, talking to people who aren't there and, you know, voices they were hear in their head, like, you know, what makes, what makes me think that it's not there? I don't know. I mean, sure. we're, I'm sure. experiencing my, listen, reality is perception. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. We're, we're, the three of us are going to sit here today and we're going to talk about things. Sure. We're all going to take away from this reality our own i mean this this situation our own reality yeah you're gonna see it your way i'm gonna see it my way and you're gonna see it totally differently mm-hmm. you know what i mean so you know we we judge and other people what they're going through because they're not acting the way we act yeah but what makes our reality any more valid right. you know what i mean so I, I always went through life thinking that so 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's that's a great way to have empathy, though, man. I mean, like, just just to think of it that way, you know, because that's the thing that is kind of sad when you see, especially when you think about the homeless situation, right? So many times people, first of all, they put this umbrella that everyone is is mentally ill, mentally ill. Yeah, that's and then therefore true. there's like there's someone's notion that there's nothing can be done for some of these some of these folks. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, it is it is interesting, especially hearing the story. And I forgot what where I heard it from, where this guy was having this conversation. Actually, you know, it was from uh, from David and. Um, from Dave King. Dave yeah, King. It's our buddies that are also creatives. They've got a, a new podcast called Imperfected, which is really right. it's good. It's really, really good. Yeah. Um, and, and they were telling the story that there was this 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 person that was, you know, trying to pay for food for something at the, at the store. And the cashier was getting frustrated because she was, like, trying to get her, like, to just pay. And the person wasn't really reacting. And then finally the person reacts and says... I'm sorry. I was just trying to figure out which of the voices was actually yours, mm-hmm. so I could respond to it. Yep. And all of a sudden, that moment of like, oh crap! Like that's a whole other level of things that you're dealing with. It creates this whole other level of empathy, right? And it just it reminds me a little bit of what, what you're describing right now. Our, our, I, despite what anybody may, when you read Bedlam, you may feel different ways. There's a lot of emotions, and it's an up and down ride, and there's a lot of anger in there. But I love my clients. Mm. I've always loved those residents. Yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, I cry when they pass on. I have my, I have my favorites. Sure. Um, and my not so favorites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, they are, they've always been more than just, um, you know, a name or a number or, or I don't know, a, a, a bed, you know what I mean? Like they're, they've been a part of my family. Um, and my parents started it off that way. You know, my dad would dress up as Santa Claus and we deliver Christmas gifts sure. on Christmas day. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. When you live with somebody, basically we all live together. You're there. Our business is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There are no, there's no time off. And we're responsible for everything for those people. And so you get to be very, very close to a lot of them. Um, and so you see them at their worst and their best. And you're right. As you're saying that the story about the, the person who couldn't discern which voice was talking, mm-hmm. my, my clients absolutely have told me, Oh yeah, my, my, my voices are telling me to do some bad things. I think I need to go to the hospital. They know that, Right. The, the voices are real to them, but they also know that the voices are not also necessarily to be trusted. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's a weird world to be in. It's very very different than than what most people's experiences are. We all just you know tap 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 through life and you know go about our business. And these people are on the sidelines. And I, I feel like what I why I want to write Bedlam now. You didn't ask me this per se, but uh, I really want to show not only their plight. But the providers, you know, from our perspective about how difficult it is to be in this business and provide care for these people um, that are are marginalized, like you say, because you become marginalized, too, with them. Um, sure. Right. You know, the federal government, well, sorry, the state government, Pennsylvania, at least, you know, the, the, um, the compensation just is is ridiculously low and it's fought by a lot of legislators just to stay that way. It doesn't really make sense to me. Um, I always said to myself that. I'm not great with paperwork. I'm not a paperwork person, but I'm a people person, and these people need our help. I think it's yeah. super critical, the, the whole idea of empathy and accompaniment and relationship just in general. I, I, I feel exactly the same way about the work that we do with the homeless because if you just have a service or a tool or a resource and you don't have that sense of like this is my family, this is my people, a lot of the times the result is actually counterintuitive. Mm. Like people won't get better. They won't mm. heal, right? So that sense of empathy and understanding here's another person, it's part of my family and dealing it with that with that with that way of looking at the world, I think is actually part of what helps people get better, right? If you just have a resource, it, it becomes very transactional or mm-hmm. it can be. Mm-hmm. And that's what some of the people 
right or wrong, may look at some of these actors in this field, whether it's mental health or homelessness, and say, well, the government can't solve it or something can't solve it. There's a truth in that that Mm. is if you're at a distance from it and you're not actually touching it and you're Mm. not seeing this as other human beings and you're not approaching it from the standpoint of like, hey, this is my reality, this is their reality, if you don't have that, then it can be very transactional and out, and, and actually, in some cases, hurt folks. I mean, I've seen it in, in our work with the homeless, for sure. Mm-hmm. This is like putting somebody into a little tiny home and you don't ever talk to them. A lot of those people, like, they get worse. Some mm-hmm. people kill themselves. I mean, I've seen this. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I mean, they'll even just, I don't know if they kill themselves, like, kill themselves. Uh, well, I've seen people just pass away. Like, I've seen people get moved out of our homes because, you know, uh, well, for I won't go into necessarily reasons, but there are some nefarious characters involved in their money, that kind of stuff. And they want them placed in certain places because it benefits them. And you see them pass away very quickly. And we always thought as a family it's because they're not getting that personal love and attention that, you know, Mm -hmm. they were. And not saying that we're the only home that can provide that. Obviously, there's. Lots Hun- of other dozens, places, but yeah, right. no. Once we have a relationship, it's you and I. Like, that's it's a, critical, it's man. Like an older, like an older cu- couple. Like you know, one person passes away, you'll see like the the survivor passes away very quickly as well because yeah. their their rock, their that's it. Emotional support is gone. So. Yeah, I'm always on to Jesus about this because I really. It's like I've been doing this work for 20 years. Me and my wife have, um, and there's like a few insights that I've picked up on. Mm-hmm. And you know, as it relates to homelessness, we always mention it. It's like. Homelessness is not necessarily something that you solve. It's something you heal. Hmm. And there's some, like, parallel or overlap with folks who have mental health issues and people at the end of life and all these different things where it's like you, you, you can't – if you approach it as a problem, you're mm-hmm. only going to get so far. Hmm. If you approach it as a relationship, it's a little – you can go a little bit deeper, right, ultimately. But I, I just – I find that that's really been helpful in our kind of walk in doing this. This is very interesting. And I, I, with homelessness – I've often wondered what what is the well like I was I was going to say solution but you know mm-hmm. yeah, what is, yeah. how do you heal this right um, because at the same time as you know as much empathy I feel for everybody's going through what they're going through you know, we as a society you know we we it is difficult to watch people st- sleep on the street in oh, tents yeah. and service so yeah, like yeah. you know you want to even if it's selfish like you don't want to see it you you want to help and so like you know. We, I don't know how I don't know how to heal that problem. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's way bigger than one conversation. You know what I mean? It is, yeah. but the start of it is kind of what you're already doing in your case, which I think is get a little closer, learn a little bit more about folks, kind of walk with them a bit. That's it. May not get you to hey, that person's house; it has no 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 more issues, but it gets you a little bit closer. I have a question for you though about this, which is in in that work, and I do want to talk about what happens to Bedlam and where it goes because I know you're a filmmaker and you do a bunch of stuff. So I don't know if you have other versions of what you how you want to tell these stories but specifically for the black community in the in the homelessness case it's a radical over index right so about 40 some odd percent mm-hmm. of the homeless population is black we're only mm-hmm. about 13 percent of the population across the board is black it's like a 4x mm-hmm. i'm not sure what it is for mental health but is there a unique perspective that you've gained from this in terms of you know uh the, the black community's struggle with mental health specifically stigma a cultural understanding of it how do you like give you the elevator pitch on what it means to the black community well i think traditionally in the black community uh it's it's stigmatized mm-hmm. to even admit that you have uh some kind of mental health and when i no, okay so my clientele we're talking about the extreme end of the spectrum where there are some severe you know, yeah. situations going right. on, right? And so in the severe situations, there's some obvious signs that this person needs help. And I don't think anybody, would, you know, stops them, although, well, they don't normally stop them, right, from getting that help. 
in in the not so far extreme end of the spectrum, you know, someone who's suffering from depression or anxiety or panic attacks, those kind of things. Um, in the black community, in my opinion, you know, it's just I'm just one man. And I think specifically it's black men. And it's very stigmatized to admit that you're having issues. It's very stigmatized. It's very stigmatized and looked down upon to admit that you need help or that you're not well mm-hmm. or that you're not OK. You know what I mean? I think men in general, you know, sure. for sure. But I think that traditionally in the black community, you know, black men have been, you know, had to be pushed to be stronger than strong kind of thing. Like, you know, you're taught, you know, as a black person, as a black man, you know, you have to work twice as hard to achieve what a white America is achieving. You So you you don't have time to right. be sad. You don't have time to be, yeah. you know, weak. In the meantime, I think mental health is seen as almost like a, you know, a luxury that only people that are a little more financially well off can even worry about. That's a right? very good and point. Especially when you're in those. We're, not, we're, we're not rich enough for that. Yeah. yeah, I'm serious, right? Even like the whole thing of like, I think we like allergies. Like, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, no one had allergies because you were too poor to do anything. Like, <laughs> you just dealt with it. Like, that's just what it was, you know? You're sneezing. Throw, a little, over it. throw a little vapor up and you're good. Like, oh, Vicks, come on now. Exactly, right? So there, I, think there's, I think there's definitely some of that that unfortunately still continues. But I'm guessing you see sort of the end of that as well. Like, how does that sort of cultural view that many times happens in the community. How does that think reflect in the, in the folks that you end up dealing with? Well, um, okay, so I, I would say, honestly, I wouldn't make it so much a, a, a cultural thing, to be honest with you. Okay. In, in our community, the, I mean, in, in the personal care boarding homes, what I have found is that family members just don't recognize that their, their afflicted family member who's living with us is that afflicted. Mm. They'll try and have a conversation with them as if mom is just regular old mom and like, I don't understand why she won't talk to me. And right. they're arguing and mom's, it won't, she lost her debit card again and she can't find her money and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, mom is schizophrenic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mom is paranoid schizophrenic. Mom thinks that there are snakes crawling out of her ears. Mm. There's a lot of barriers to her having a normal conversation with you. And so, uh, what I found is that it, it really doesn't have any racial boundaries when it comes to that disconnect. Disconnect. Right. You know, I mean, so when you're at that end, and I've often wondered, is it because that, you know, maybe the mental illness is somewhat permeating the family in general, you know, where you they can't discern that mom or dad or whomever is going through something very, very serious that, you know, um, you know, the debit card is not the most important thing in the world to them right now. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And as you think about um, this book and your work. What other expressions of this can you imagine? I mean, I know you've done a bunch of docs and you've done, you know, writing and acting and all kinds of stuff, screenwriter, et cetera. But like, how do you view this? Is this a platform for you that you envision kind of taking in other directions? I was just talking to my publisher last night. And again, I just seen uh, Anthony Bourdain's, some of the doc- documentary. And I saw that he went on a journey trying to, I guess, that's, that's how um, uh, the, the show be- came about. He was going to write a second book, going to travel the world and I guess eat food and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, uh, um, I've been doing a bunch of interviews based on this book. And invariably people talk to me about, you know, therapy and black men's health and mental health, wellness, that kind of stuff. And I had to reflect that, Oh, I've gone through a lot of trauma as a provider and a child in this business and a man in this business and trying to figure out who I am, and where I am and what I'm going through. And I haven't gone to therapy myself. So I signed up for therapy uh, about two weeks ago and I said, you know what, maybe I should just journal everything. Maybe I should go on mental health uh, retreats. Maybe I should just try and explore what all that means to me and 
and share. You know, maybe that's the next iteration of Bedlam. I, I don't know. I mean, you just literally that's just part start of how you normalize it, right? I mean, when, people, when folks like yourself, yeah. right, are going out there and do it, do it as well, and then talk about it. Yeah, but I think that's the issue, right? When you when people look at you know at folks that they look like pretty well put together. They look, they're successful, and they're like, wait, what? You're also dealing with some of this stuff that I'm dealing with, right? And it's it's when you start talking about things that makes it a lot easier for like royals to want to engage in that kind of conversation. We all put these uh, these facades on for society, right? Like sure. wake up in the morning and, you know, slather on what the norms of society want us to look mm-hmm. like and feel like and, you know, pretend we're all okay. I mean, I think we're all okay, but— no, we're not all okay. Yeah. Do you think the, the do you think the impact of COVID and what we've all been through in the last Ooh. couple of years have kind of helped us become more empathetic in general? Because look, the, the the data on this, and you, I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, especially with younger people, but these last couple of years have been tough, right? Tough across the board. <laughs> and it's just like, look, uh, there's the reality. Maybe it, you could, you could argue it makes you more empathetic in the sense that like, hey, I'm dealing with stuff maybe I never had to deal with because my rhythm got broken and now I had to like sit and reflect around the stuff mm-hmm. that's really going on. You can make that argument. The other argument could be it's like, well, yeah, but we were kind of trapped in this bubble of like everybody's dealing with it. So it didn't have the same type of isolation somebody who maybe has mental health would have normally felt. Like what what was or what has been the impact maybe to you or to this work in the case of COVID? COVID has really jacked up everybody across the board, specifically in our business. Um, they shut down the day programs uh, because of COVID. So uh, in our business, uh, our, our yeah, clients. explain that. What are, what are they? So a day program is where it's not like adult daycare, basically. And they'll have like not only psychiatric and uh, therapy there for the, for the clients. They'll have uh, games and uh, excursions and, uh, and you're meeting other people from different homes. So it's like, sure. a, it's like a daycare, basically, right? Yeah. Because of COVID, they shut all those down. So now the clients are sitting in the building that they live in all day long for two years. You've already got mental health issues, severe mental health, mental health issues. And now you're, not only is your rhythm broken, but you're, you're trapped. And like, right. so that was very tough for them and tough for our staff too. Sure. You know, our, our staff had to deal. You're not used to having like, you know, if you have a building of 10, you're not used to having all 10. And we have some of our, some of our buildings are as much as like 70 people. Wow. So 70 people all stuck in the building all day long, all right. night long. You're not, you can't That's, go anywhere. It's just rough no matter what your it's mental tired, state is. Yeah. Whatever you start with. It's, not, t- not, yeah. it's, not, it's, it's going to deteriorate you. And you haven't seen any changes with the, with the changes of regulations and, and COVID restrictions. Has any of that started to revert back to, to what it was? Um. You know, there's a, there's a higher uh, uh, criteria, or higher you know um, yeah, regulations yeah, yeah. for our our businesses, and we try and keep it high anyway because you know we're just trying yeah. to be super safe. But I mean, I just came from Philadelphia, and they were wide open there. I was, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what's changed in California since I've been away for a couple of weeks or, or weeks. So it's changed quite a bit the last couple it of weeks. Is, Friday, yeah, yeah. Friday they lifted Friday. the indoor uh, oh, mask yeah. mandate. I yeah. went, yeah. I went into the gym in Philadelphia, and then everybody's like huffing and puffing, and I'm like, oh, I can take my mask off. Like, yeah. Do I want to take my mask off? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's that going we're on. We're all right shell shocked. I think we're all like, uh, we're sure. all uh, scared. You know what was interesting too? Just yesterday, so uh, I was at I was at church, and in uh, so I'm Catholic, and you know we have our mass service and um the pastor at the end of the mass you know said to the congregation he's like hey by the way i want to let you know what you can already notice because all of us were not wearing masks on the you know in the sanctuary as we were giving the mass um and i want you to realize why we're doing this because the cdc has lifted it and the and the archdiocese which is kind of the governing body right Mm -hmm. for 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 this area has also gone in line with that and so that's why we don't have to wear masks anymore if you if you have a mask you want to wear it that's fine 
but we don't right. have to. And what I thought was really interesting is the number of people who immediately took their mask down. It wasn't all of them, but it was a number that was like, oh, good. You know, they took their yeah. mask down. And other people were like, they, it's just like they didn't even – maybe they heard it or whatever, but they just kept it going. It was about it was about a 50-50, and yeah. folks just yeah, no, I, left I, their mask. I saw that this uh, this weekend. And we'll talk about it, one of our, one of our topics. It, I but you saw that break, that. though, yeah, between yeah, people sure. who were, like, just waiting for the bell. Like, right. you know, ding, boom. And then, like, other people are like, wait a minute. I don't care yeah, what yeah. so-and-so says for me or maybe in general. I don't want to do that. Right, I thought right, it was really right. interesting. Because yeah, we'll, we'll I'm, in the, I'm yeah. in the bell category. You're in the bell category. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you the bell category day one. That's <laughs> I was like, yeah. April 2020. Yeah, I'm, yeah, in the, yeah. I'm in the, the bell, bell category. category. Well, wait, just, not to uh, switch gears altogether, but I, I was curious, you know, um, in looking at your bio, it talked about documentary that, they, that you're finishing up, mm-hmm. uh, A Sweet of Sugar, right? So talk a little bit about that. I, I, a Sweet of Sugar. Yeah, I want to hear about the sports angle here and your, your thoughts, especially mm-hmm. as it relates to, to HBCUs. A Sweet of Sugar is a documentary we started filming probably Probably in, uh, well, 2016 or so. Um, so it's about why don't, uh, it's, it's exploring why elite black athletes no longer um, uh, go to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Now, m- remind, mind you, this was started before Dion. Right. Uh, I was so, told I have I my mean, notes here. Completely stealing my thunder, Mr. <laughs> Sanders. Thank you very much. But if someone's going to do it, how do we Dion? You know? I mean, I'm, I'm happy that it's happening because I'm an HBCU alum. I went to Howard University, the Mecca in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. the only HU, the real HU mm-hmm. to all my Hampton Institute uh, fans uh, out there. Um, but so my, really old school, too. People 1867. Yeah, it was founded. People don't realize yeah. that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the HBCUs were land grant universities founded in the late 1800s, like 1860, you know, mm. seven to 1872 or whatever. Um, but Sweeter Sugar um, explores the macro conversation is about elite black athletes, HBCUs and desegregation, how there's this complete shift from in our society when we desegregated our society and, and, and all of a sudden uh, black the black community felt like oh I can go to the you know the white school and the white store I'm going to completely abandon my community and then you see uh, you know neighborhoods start to change where we're abandoning our own our own stuff and we when we had the opportunity to to um, it also the micro story is very personal it's my son and myself uh, my son at the time we started filming was not I mean we wanted him to play college football it'd be great but we weren't thinking he would you know be as get as big as he got. Uh, and so Howard University was, you know, it'd be great if he played at Howard University. So he was, you know, he had, he was reaching out to them as he was getting bigger and bigger and they weren't really responding. As they weren't responding, all of a sudden his star started rising as far as a recruit nationally and he started getting a lot of Pac-12 offers and he ended up going to, um, I guess I don't know if I want to, uh, Husky. He's a Husky, yeah. yeah. He's a University of Washington Husky. Very proud of him. I guess I ruined the end of the movie, but <laughs> that's all right. I mean, maybe if somebody People can do their research. Yeah, 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 research, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, it was, but it was a diff- It wasn't difficult because, well, he never get, he never got offered by Howard. I, I love my unit, my alma mater, but uh, they had a, three coaches in like two years, so they were going yeah. through a lot of changes. They don't have time to come and recruit the West Coast. But what it what I what I found learned myself from the whole experience is that. You know, if we want these universities to be able to provide better facilities and better resources for our children going, coming behind us, we as alum have to do a way better job of giving back. I think less than 5% of any alum of Howard University gives anything back. Really? Mm. Now, maybe a white university can afford that because their endowment might be, like, I don't know, 200 billion gazillion dollars, right. but Howard University can't afford that. You know, you've got to give something back. And I don't care how much money you make. I don't make a lot of money. I just put a little on my credit card. I give you know, $25 a month. If every 
Howard alum, every HBCU alum did that. I think we did the math. We had somebody do the math for us. I think it's like, you know, something like $400 million it would generate for HBCUs maybe yearly. I don't know. But the point is, something's better than nothing. And we can't sit and complain about what we don't have if we're not doing it the best we can. Do you think that's the core issue, the alumni support? I think it's a huge issue. You know, we have to donate. You have to give back to the universities. You have to provide. And, you know, yeah, we need a bigger endowment. But, you know, I, I don't have millions of dollars, so I can't tell you to you know, give your $100 million right. to Howard University. I, I mean, I wish I could. Mm-hmm. Maybe that might be another documentary. Maybe I'll yeah. go around and beg people for uh, huge endowments. But I think it starts with the alumni being actively involved in their, their alma mater, not just on Howard's homecoming weekend when we all show up and there's 200,000 people show up to D.C. to hang out at Howard. Well, imagine if they all gave some money that weekend right. to the uh, the endowment or what have you. Um, but I mean, there are some other issues, obviously. I mean, the way uh, – because Howard is so strapped for money, I mean, um, you can't just give money to the football program, for example. You can't sure. build them a stadium. You have to give it to the general fund, and they decide where the money goes because they're so strapped for cash, apparently. But that's something to look into as an administration to say, you know, I think Steve Weich the, from the NFL Network, we interviewed him on the documentary. And he he's an Howard alumni. He He – really laid it out really perfectly. So I'm just going to quote him. He's like, you know, um, sports, footballs particularly, and basketball for many schools is like the front porch of your house. And so if you build this beautiful front porch, people will come inside, you know? So as much as I, we are, it's true. Howard is a great academic institution. We don't want to ruin that. At the same time, if you want to attract some money, right? get your front porch in order. I mean, mm. there are, I mean, there's, there's a, there are studies to show how much Nick Saban's winning at Alabama has increased enrollment. Kids are kids from LA want to go to Tuscaloosa to school because they right. want to sit in the stands and yell road tide. Yeah. You know right. I mean? Well, I mean, you can't underestimate the, the marketing power of those kind of victories and that mm-hmm. kind of program. Cause that's what it is. I mean, look, we have a long history, Jesus and I in marketing. And the reality of it is, is athletics can be an incredible platform to get visibility up. And it's like, that's the starting point of any kind of end goal, right? People got to know you're there and they mm-hmm. have to have an idea of what it means to be part of that experience. And once they do, yeah, I mean, the academics and all those things will matter. But if you don't even know it's there as an option, you're, it's not going to go down that funnel where you got to be able you got to be able to have awareness before you can have consideration and intent, right? That's the old marketing funnel, and they're really yeah. good well, at driving what is, that what is awareness. Interesting though, because I would say the the argument that I'm hearing more and more is the opposite argument, mm. where how much some of these schools are just wasting in some cases the amount of just ridiculous amount of money. And some of these football programs, especially coaches, that they can just leave, and coaches that are going recruiting kids, and then leaving a couple of years later when they get pulled up by the NFL. When you and, say and waste, they, though, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you well, say? When, what I mean is, I'm, I'm giving the perspective that I hear a lot more from students mm-hmm. and from from university professors saying, "Listen, we're putting all, we're dumping all this money into our football programs, mm-hmm. right? USC is a great example. The amount of money that gets dumped to that program that hasn't won a championship in a while." Mm-hmm. Right. And and part of the argument is like, well, if we actually invest some of this money into our actual education, giving more scholarships, making it marketing some of these kids to actually to come here like that is a it's a better outcome for these kids altogether. By the way, I'm a huge sports fan, but but I'm telling you like that. I like the devil's advocate. I, I think the the well, I find interesting <laughs> that is in this, role in this, in this show, moment, by the way, you know, you know what's funny about this in this mm-hmm. moment where I feel like well, the last couple of years. We're in this movement of more accountability across mm-hmm. the board. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we've talked about this. A lot of these social movements that happen especially with Black Lives Matter, everything around, around George Floyd, mm-hmm. raise the bar of what consumers, many not only believe that brands should support, that, but that brands can actually make a difference and create an impact. And I think there's some of that that also has permeated back into the sports world, especially in colleges, where mm-hmm. we're saying, 
hey, I get all the for all the reasons we talk about that we invest in a lot of our football team, but what about the actual 99% of other students that are never going to benefit. By the way, 99%, not just a student, 99.9% of everyone's going to that school because only the 0.1 may ever get a shot or even going make it to the NFL. Why are we more investing more in that? I get the front porch analogy. But I hold on a second. I, 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 I get that May altogether. I respond, Your Honor? <laughs> no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ramble for another time. I'm kidding. I, 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 I will say this very quickly. You said that, um, you, you mentioned that, the, why are we investing the money in the football program or why are we spending dollars over there? Well, I'll tell you why, because... That's where the dollars are generated in the first place. I'm sorry, Johnny, Lisa, you walked in the front door, your parents are paying $65,000 a year or you're on scholarship, whatever it is. You're not generating the dollars that the football team is generating. You're talking about a, a, um, a, a TV contract that's worth what? It's going to be worth uh, like $90 billion or something crazy, like $9 billion right. when it comes up for renew- renewal. Not for just for USC, but, you know, splitting it up. But yeah, yeah, yeah. they're generating, because they're in the Pac-12, because they're Division One football, because it's going to be an ESPN and the college football championship, regardless if they go or not, the Pac-12 gives them like, I don't know, $40, $50 million a year. I'm sorry, Johnny. I'm sorry, Lisa. You don't generate the dollars. And that's mm. why they're going to spend the money to continue to get that revenue. It's you know, it is what it right. is. Yeah, and, and I think this is where obviously part of the movement that has been pushed by by student athletes has been. Well, let us all at least participate in those dollars be, being raised because mm-hmm. you're making all this money. Our coaches are getting paid a whole bunch of money, and the students who are actually the ones that are delivering on the experience are not actually benefiting. How do you feel about that NCAA ruling? I mean, making it making it. But NIL and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay, so I, I, I'm turning just a whole of the show all together. Right? I love it. Let's go. We can rock and roll. I'm here. Uh, you know, we can talk. We can we can get it. Anything I can, I can tell we picked the right courage or cringe yeah. topics too. We got football. We got mental health. We Let's got all kinds do it, of stuff. Baby. Yeah. Um, of course, I'm in favor of NIL. Um, you, no one in this country should be restricted in their earning power. Mm. And this, it was oh, ridiculous like to me. You know, like that, yeah. you think about Ohio State back when um, was it Terrell Pryor got he traded um, uh, jerseys for tattoos, completely sunk the entire program. He traded jerseys for a free two, kid didn't have enough money for a tattoo. I know. Mm. He that traded is, a, yeah. jer- a signed jersey for a tattoo. Lost his scholarship. School gets on probation. It it's goes down to two. It's ridiculous. Right. It's ridiculous. If you're if you are a fo- anybody else on campus can earn a dollar with their picture. Except for the football team, right. or the basketball team, the soccer players. Right. Uh, there's countless stories of just ridiculous um, um, fr- and s- sanctions being imposed by the NCAA for the silliest little things. I, I was listening. I was reading a story in the Athletic about this young lady. She's a tennis player. Her entire all of her records got wiped out from her school because the, during her years there. The uh, county department made a, a, a error, and when they moved off campus, they were paying her cable bill, and they weren't supposed to. It was like about, I don't know, twenty five hundred bucks, three thousand dollars. She didn't put it in her pocket, but it was, since it was paid on her behalf, it was illegal benefit. All of her records wiped out. And, and, well, you know what's, what's funny about that, Bobby, is that then you hear the professional athletes, right, like Keyshawn Johnson, talking about like, yeah, everyone. Got, well, everyone got paid. I, everyone I, got paid. All of the big players get paid by the big schools. So you want to talk about some, you know, how do you get more of these athletes to go back to HBCU? Part of it is that I mean that look, and the reality is when you just make it now legal, people are getting paid all along. All the, the big athletes. Thank you, Jesus. That's the biggest thing I, when I have it's a conversation. Some argument, right? It's like this not. They're not. You're not changing anything from the big guys, right? The five star kid with a bunch of you know recruiting interests. He's already getting. Listen, these I know for a fact, and I I'm not going to say names or whatever. But there are kids I know about in the past ten years. I'll say I'll, I'll get a wide swath of the time, so you can't pin me down. But you know, my kids have been handed half a million dollars in cash. You sure. got you have kids who have said I will sign with the school that would give me one million dollars in cash. 
Okay. Now my kid is not getting those offers. He's a three star kid from you know Loyola High School. Sure. You know we were lucky to get good a good school. Great school. Yeah. Great school. We, you know, we had to pay our own way to every visit we went to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm broke, broke. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. you know, but, it, but yeah. NIL helps him because okay, now for example, University of Washington now has a program where he can opt in to jersey sales. Now my kids are reserve on the team at this point in time. That he'll have he'll have. Three jersey sales. It'd be me, my wife, and my dad. We'll, hey, we'll buy one. You buy one. Okay, but we got five. But he, he should be yeah. allowed to do that. For sure, you know? he should be. Allowed, if he goes, I mean, he has an armful of tattoos right now. I told him, like, you know, enough of the tattoos. Okay, but my son if, too. One of my sons does too. If, yeah. if if he wanted to get a, if somebody wanted to give him a free tattoo, now he won't lose his scholarship. Yeah. Right. And people That's say, ridiculous. oh, they should be happy. You're getting free ed- education. Let me tell you something. My son does six days a week, twelve hours a day of football. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then he gets to go to school and he studies all night long. He's got to keep it. Well, for the school, for them, they don't care. It's a 2.0 for, to stay on the team. But for the Spears family, it's not a 2.0 to stay on the football team. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, he's got to do his work. Okay. For that's sure. not free. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. free. So that's no, my absolutely. feeling. Before, before we get to, uh, to Courage or Cringe, Bobby, what's next for you? I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on. Well, um, we are... We are uh, pitching uh, Bedlam as a TV series. Um, awesome. We're working on. We have a, we have some interest. Um, it's a it's a different type of topic. It's a little dark for some people, so we have to you know we have to get them to actually read the pitch deck to see that there's going to be more of a comedic tone to it. Um, if you actually read the if you actually read the book, most people have said I didn't think I would laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. So the next step for that is we're going to pitch a TV series. Mm-hmm. So we got a few meetings set up and we'll see where it goes. And other than that, I, I'm really interested in taking that mental health journey. Um, That's great. Not just to, you know, to, well, selfishly, because I think I, I think I need to, you know, mm-hmm. like we we're at starting in the beginning of this conversation about being a child in this, in this business and this, I didn't really take a lot of time to reflect on how it affected me and who I became. And I think I just woke up one day and I was 45 years old and I was like, oh my God, you know, I have kids and a wife and, where am I? Who am I? Like, you know, that little song, like the talking heads or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think that that journey would be good for me. And I think that people enjoy reading about it, too. It's great. Well, so a super interesting book. You're a really interesting guy with the, with that background. We're super bullish on what you're up to. And, you know, we'll keep tabs on everything going on and, uh, you know, really wish all those projects the greatest of success. Uh, I know I speak on behalf of Jesus in that regard. And we have tailor-made this show, Bobby, for <laughs> you with these Courage or Cringe topics. Now, I know you've played you've – you've heard the game, but just to, for the sake of rulemaking, we'll have Jesus go through the rules of the game, and then we'll, we'll play. So, yeah, Courage or Cringe. So I will cover each topic, Bobby, uh, give a background on what the topic is, and then uh, each of us will go and say whether we think it's courageous or cringeworthy. And per usual, per our tradition, our guest always goes first. All right. Awesome. All always right. goes first every time, too. Every time. That helps us formulate <laughs> what we're going to talk about, which is great. Like, it's kind of like cheating. I, I, I wouldn't have said that. That's why, that's why I like guest shows the best, because I don't have to do that much work. All right. Well, so let's play uh, Courage or Cringe. All right, Courage or Cringe, TikTok faces investigation into its impact on young people's mental health. Mm. Uh, if, we, if we only had someone that can, t- that can speak, can speak to, to mental, mental health, health, that would be helpful in this case. Uh, so a group of attorney generals from various states, including California, Florida, Massachusetts, Kentucky, Nebraska, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Vermont, 
is investigating if TikTok's design, operations, or promotion to young users negatively affect their physical or mental health. Are you a TikTok user, Bobby? Hell, uh, okay. <laughs> you can say it. It's okay. Oh, yeah, you did. Curse, right? yeah. Hell no. I hate, <laughs> I hate TikTok. I hate it. It's going to be good. Answer this question. I'm going to sit a little closer to Bobby for this one. <laughs> yeah. So in this case, specifically, they're seeking out to find out if the app violated state consumer protection laws, right? Now, according to the Massachusetts AG, uh, she said, as children and teens already grapple with issues of anxiety, social pressure, and depression, we cannot allow social media to further harm their physical health and mental well-being. Now, the AGs are looking into, one, potential harm to young people using the app and what TikTok knew about those harms. And two, we'll include looking at techniques TikTok uses to boost engagement, increase the time spent in the app, and frequency of usage. Mm. And if there's anything, something that they've been really good at is that. I mean, their ability yeah. to suck you down the wormhole is very, very it's effective. It's really good bordering on genius. Exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, TikTok, they came out, right? And they welcomed the investigation with open arms. And they <laughs> yeah, said right. to this, they're like, we care deeply about building an experience that helps to protect and support the well-being of our community mm-hmm. and I appreciate I that, the that the state attorneys generals <laughs> are focusing on the safety of young users. We look forward to providing information on the many safety and privacy protections we have for teens. See, uh, don't you guys feel better already? I do. I do. Mm, that's I do. great. Yeah. So this is all part of a broader effort, right, that we, uh, we've seen by the government to question and potentially regulate various social media platforms, especially under practices that impact children. Just most recent, last week, during the State of the Union address, President Biden talked about the need to ban uh, targeted advertising to children on social media platforms. Can I, can, I, can I just stop for just a second on that one? Because I always, I'm always on all of this. I, I know we're going to get to this, and I want to hear what you have to say. But really quickly on the kind of targeted kids advertisement. Yeah. These companies, in large part, have these you know kids platforms. YouTube has YouTube Kids. And mm-hmm. like these other platforms, that, like Facebook has this thing for kids. That's not where the kids are. Mm-mm. Like it's like it, it, it creates this little mode around it's like, well, in our kids platform, right. we have all these restrictions. And I always laugh about that because mm-hmm. my kids and never at one point did they go, let me get to YouTube, YouTube kids, kids. <laughs> or, or the TikTok junior version. Do you see what I'm saying? No. It just seems silly to it's me. Well, I, will, Bullshit. I, will, I will disagree on the YouTube kids one only because YouTube kids for young kids, like really, really young kids. It actually works really, really well. I just I've, I've been on these con- congressional hearings, Bobby, where, where the persons gets asked these questions about like, look at all the damage. Look at all the data. It's like, yes, that's why we created the YouTube yeah. Kids platform the way we have. But you can't stop the, a kid from yeah. going where they want to go. I think though. the issue is not – like in the case of YouTube, YouTube Kids as a platform I think works very well. Mm. Now, the challenge is that in many cases we, – and we'll get into this. Until the parents, kid starts typing, then he can go on the regular YouTube. Yeah, and until the parents give, give the kids a phone when they're six years old. Exactly. Right? So then at that point, they're like, okay, you can put whatever platform you want, but then you give giving kids unrestricted access. That's not – you know, that's a whole other issue, right? Mm-hmm. But the platform, I, I actually, I do like what they've done with YouTube because I think it actually works pretty well as long as you as a parent are being responsible about keeping them to those. Certainly. Yeah. But um, by the way, the same, also same group of AGs also investigating uh, Meta for allegedly promoting Instagram to young users despite knowledge of its harm. And, you know, even they talked about a little bit too, you were saying, Instagram was talking about launching like a youth-focused Instagram platform that they're trying to get them to not do that. Mm-hmm. Now, for TikTok, you know, it has already paid $5.7 million to the FTC in 2019 wow. to settle accusations that Musical.ly, which was a predecessor of, of uh, TikTok, mm-hmm. uh, had, uh, had not gotten proper permission from parents of young uh, children who signed up for the, to, for the, to use the app, right? So, courage or cringe, a government looking to protect children from the harm of social media, or here's an idea. How about parents just parent their kids and stop giving them phones at seven years old? So we're doing courage or cringe on tick on the investigations, right? On the investigation, right. correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to, uh, I don't normally side with, uh, you know, a lot of 
I normally side with personal responsibility. Okay. But in this situation, I'm going to say I'm going to say it's courage or courageous for the government. I think that this is such an insidious, invasive, harmful. I think I think that the zombie apocalypse is upon us. Mm. Whatever you do most, you're going to do best. And most of us are staring into our phones, into the deep abyss of nothingness and stupidity. And I really believe that Preacher. because of these algorithms that they build, which are way beyond these um, lawmakers grasp. A lot of, I mean, most of, I know I don't understand how all this works, but I do understand that this phone is listening to me, it's preaching to me, it's following me, and it's my fault, yes, but at the same time, um, it's it's so pervasive in our community, in our society, we do need some checks and balances and some controls, especially when it comes to children. Now, again, I, I do think that parents need to be, you know, personally responsible, but we need some help in this situation. We need some help, okay? Because it's 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 out of our control right now. It's it's gone way beyond mm. okay, in my opinion. I'm yeah. with I'm with Bobby on this one too. I'm definitely courage on it. I, this goes back to my argument, Bobby, about these platforms that they're a hybrid between private and public. There's a, they're a new category because I'm with you and in, in generally speaking in the area of personal responsibility. And you have to as a parent, as a user, as a consumer, like you're probably 85 percent of whether or not something ends up being harmful to you. Right. We can all go to the store and buy bags of sugar and just eat them nonstop if we wanted to. Right. So I'm with you generally speaking on the private responsibility. In this case, I don't think we're talking about necessarily private things only. I think we're talking mm-hmm. about some weird thing between a private company and a public utility. It's mm-hmm. a weird hybrid we've never had before. And as a result, to use your words, we need some help with this stuff. I think the other issue is they talk a lot in the article about like the fact that these algorithms sometimes can help you descend into bad types of content. And that's not good too. We have to put checks on that. But the issue for me, the biggest issue is the time spent orientation to these algorithms mm-hmm. because the algorithms are built to basically have you sp- spend <clears> – <throat> as much time as possible in these platforms. And TikTok, among all of them, is a total black hole of attention. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's a time machine. Mm -hmm. It's a time machine. Mm -hmm. People will be on there for 20 minutes and realize it was six hours. (laughs) That's, That's what I'm talking about, right? So there's this weird time dilation thing that happens on these platforms, and that's because the algorithm is built for that end. So for me, it's courage that they're being investigated. I think they need all the scrutiny in the world. And hopefully that keep, that keeps them as, at the very least keeps them a little sharper in terms of what people need and what can they I, want. Can I ask you both a question? Yeah, yeah. If okay. this case, if there was a way to keep kids completely out of the let's let's take kids completely out of the equation, right? Let's say you use facial recognition and you give approximate age of what, what they are, and therefore they can. Let's, let's just 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 follow me this one. I wish this was video. I wish this was video. Facial recognition, that's kind of where I'm, where we I'm can going talk with, about something. Else. That's kind of where I'm going with with, <laughs> this, with this argument, right? But mm-hmm. but let's just just. Bear with me. Put kids out of the equation. If this was same situation, AGs going after someone like TikTok for looking at their practices of keeping people engaged, but it really is aimed only at adults because that's what affected. Would you both feel the exact same way? I would. Still think. I would. Still be courageous, Bobby. What do you you think? Adults. Yeah. I would feel less sure strong about it, but I still because I am I am an addict of my phone. Right. And I have I have been in that 20 minute, six hour vortex. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that I'm personally responsible. I know I got to put this thing down. At the same time, I do believe that this technology is a bit beyond what we're um, it's a bit beyond. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's yeah. so invasive and pervasive. I just feel like there's something else at play here that needs to be investigated at the very least. I'm sorry. Sure. Sure. You know? Yeah. I would, too, just be, again, less. Uh, intensely, perhaps, if we're talking about adults. 
But I would also feel this, again, back to the principle that I don't think that these are like, it's like the corner bakery. These are not that, that kind of private yeah. business. I think there's something else because of the fact that it impacts so many people simultaneously mm-hmm. that they need to have an additional layer of scrutiny. And I do think that overall, if all we're doing is spending that amount of time looking at screens, then other things like community, like you know, other aspects of society take a hit. And I think that's why it's important. I mean, we've seen yeah. how how... We've seen how social media has like massively affected our our society in the last during the pandemic during the last three years. Sure. Um, you know, people are in these vacuums of thought. Mm-hmm. You know, and where they their their ideology is being bounced back to them, and where everybody believes that they're right, and there's all this aggressive conversation between people on on these social media platforms. This is like 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 Charlie said. It's more than it's um it's more than public it's it's more than private it's you know it's it's a hybrid it's something yeah. else and, and that's why when i see an issue like this i struggle with it frankly because i i find this as an interesting because where my head goes immediately when i think of an issue like this is like i'm hearing a lot of people that are free market people all of a sudden now like really want to be regulating business where in all cases like no 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 let's let's get let's get government out of here and i don't necessarily follow always like why that is the case specifically here. and i understand that something nefarious 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 sorry it's going on and and we don't really quite understand it and we know it's really really bad you can apply that to a whole bunch of stuff you can apply that to food definitely right when you look at how much how how, how many percentage of people in the us are obese right a lot of people right and and you can say well hey we should stop you know, trans fast. We should stop people from we don't have fried foods. We should stop people like that we work that we work with, like church's chicken. They should let's take them out of business because how much they're contributing to kids and people being overweight that leads to diabetes, leads to a bunch of things. Let's figure out ways to negate and, and that and this gets to the point where I start getting really uncomfortable really quickly. Don't mess, even with, though, don't mess with my churches, Jesus. No. Come on. I'm picking on churches, but my point yeah. is like when you kinda of go across the board, there's like there's a lot of companies that are doing things. That they're know yeah, they're you. bad for their consumers and continue to do it. But so we do. So do we regulate all of them? But we do scrutinize those 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 companies. We 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 in certain we do have like you know labeling where you have to ro- release your uh, ingredients. These people, sure. you, you know, we put labels on cigarettes. If you want to continue to buy cigarettes and smoke cigarettes, it does say that this is going to cause cancer and kill you eventually. Okay, so if you could, if you want to say that, you know, every time you log onto your Instagram or your TikTok or what have you, or pick up your phone, is a warning that you know, like you said, screen time. You have been on this. You know, medical research shows that you know. Two hours sure. per week is fine, and you are at fifty hours right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? But but I think but I think that's fine, right? Like to give people warnings that hey, you've been out here too long. I have no issue with that. What I'm saying is that I don't see any movement of saying to restricting people how much they can eat. To saying, oh, you've already had one burger this week. You can't have you can't have two burgers. But <laughs> well, we warn people that you're, you're ready, no, no, hold on, hold on. You oh, can sorry. say it's fat. By the way, do you know there's a restaurant in Las Vegas? It's called like the Heart Attack uh, Restaurant. Like literally, it's it's I'm there. Uh, I'll take it. You know what I'm talking about, right? No, like, I don't. There's a burger joint. With, like, it's like, it's like, it's called, it's yeah. called the heart attack. Because we're very much like, hey, like we're warning you that there could be, you know, 5,000 calories in one meal, which is what should be what you, you know, probably consume in, in three days. And we still do that. So there is a piece of this that while I, I probably end up coming courage on this at the end of the day, because mm-hmm. it is aimed at children. I also think about just this past weekend. I was hanging out with my daughter's nine years old. Mm-hmm. She was hanging out with a bunch of people from a gymnastics class. Some of her kids not only have phones, they're calling each other on video on the spot. And the parent, like, it's fine. They can make phone calls. They call each other on video, mm-hmm. and no one is worried about it. And this kid is like eight years old. Mm-hmm. 
So if you then turn around and tell me, oh, I need uh, I need Apple to have put a better restrictions. I need TikTok. I need Facebook. I'm like, no, no. Why don't you take the phone out of your eight year old kid's hand and be a parent? See, like there's there's a part of that. Like I don't, you know, I feel you, like like we're we're I giving agree. it to the government to parent our, our own children. No, they're, they're, you're you're certainly making a great point, and I wish I'd not given my children phones when I did. I me wish too. I'd waited. Um, my parents bought their grandchildren phones and demanded that they have phones like their friends because my children were whining. Everybody else has a phone. Right. I was like, this is a bad idea. And yeah. but you know now it's it's know. tough to unring that bell too. Yeah. it really is. Once you've given phone. it, it's really yeah, tough it's to really do. Hard. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Mm. Uh, real sidebar. Mm. So I used to have a punishment phone. Now my kids are. My, I, I have one kid in college. <laughs> So What's I used to have a, a old it's school. The, it's the little firefly, the little yeah. one with the big buttons yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, I had a flip phone, brick phone. And if they you know, oh, got I in trouble, I would take the That's SIM great. card out of the, the the iPhone, put it in the brick phone. If Here I didn't you think you were smart before, now I do. Genius. Take it all, 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 all together, like replacing uh, no, 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 it is no. even worse. Like, I got to call you. I got to call you. That's right. You want to be for emergencies. I'm going to hold on to that one. Yeah, look, my argument, Jesus, to your question is, and you can like the argument or not, but my argument begins with the principle that these are not private companies like a food company, like mm-hmm. somebody making bread, like somebody making sugar. These are a different thing. But that's Tony, why. We, when more than 50% of population in the U.S. is obese. Right. Th- but think, think about that. So I got at it. some point, you have to say the damage that fast food companies mm-hmm. are doing in this country to our health if, if, is, if, is as big or if all more. The, if all the fast food companies, like, if every fast food company and every sugar provider in the world was owned by three people that all lived in like the Bay yeah, Area, then then I'd be going, you know what? That's yeah, let's point. look at this. You know, it's just, it's a different animal. It's just a different thing. And you are warned repeatedly about your health as far as what you eat. You know, I'm telling you, if, if there's a difference in it, you log onto this thing, Unconsciously, you're just logging on to these apps, and you're just like you're in this vortex, and there's no warning. I mean, so, it, so Bobby, there, if there was a warning after after 15 minutes, then you would be okay with TikTok. I mean, not okay. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't do TikTok. I don't understand. I think TikTok, it should be like but, Mission Impossible. You know, this this <laughs> app will self destruct yeah. in 15 minutes. Yeah. You have to reinstall it every time. That's That'd what I would. Something. All, all I'm saying is, look, I, I get the argument. I'm not even. I'm not defender <laughs> of TikTok. I'm simply saying there's a lot of other industries yeah. that fall in the exact same category. They're creating just as much damage. But people are like not okay with even talking about that. Oh, you talk about food for me, my food? Like, oh no. But yeah, and, uh, you know, we we talked about everything happened with COVID. How many comorbidities are people being obese? Yeah, because Americans are obese. Mm-hmm. That's why. You know right? what? I, did I tell you this? That I saw this stat. I don't know if you've seen these. The stats on uh, uh, case case to mortality ratio, and the 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 country, the continent with the least case to mortality threshold was mm-hmm. Africa. Yeah. Least. And you look at the places that had the highest case to mortality threshold. It was all like, you know, the super developed. Right. Very. It's like because you're right. It was it's a comorbidity capital is That's basically right. what it was. These mm. places that had really, really high mortality mm. rates. All right. We agree. But I still managed somehow to well, pick a fight even while agreeing with you. That's guys. perfect. <laughs> what the show is about. I love it. You, yeah. TikTok is the devil. Go there for it. Go. Yeah, all right. All right. Next. 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 All right. <laughs> NFL tests football IQ a different way after backlash for biased methods. Yeah. Ooh. So in January, the NFL announced that it will no longer administer the Wonderlic test uh, for NFL prospects. So for those that may not know, this is a 50-question IQ exam that is meant to tell potential NFL teams how intelligent a player may be and obviously how successful they may be in the, while playing. However, two main, main problems here. One is cognitive tests in general tend to have built-in biases that more deeply affect players coming from underserved communities. Um, that posi- a position that is even daunter for the Elden Wonderlic creator um, – 
Oh, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. A position that even the daughter of the actual creator of the one like test says that hey, we should be using this for 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 NFL, right? And then second thing, which is there's actually no statistical significant correlation between a player's Wonderlic score and how that player actually performs on the field, mm-hmm. right? So in a 2011 study by two Cal State Fullerton economic professors found that an increase from the 25th to the 75th percentile on the Wonderlic uh, score correlated to a rise of more than 14 spots in draft position for white players. But for black players, that game was less than half of that. So mm-hmm. think about that. So even when there was like a really high increase in the actual score – it really helped some of the white players get drafted much higher, mm-hmm. but for black players, it didn't do didn't do as much for them. Mm-hmm. And based also on the fact that it's actually there's no significant difference in people in what they score and how well they actually do. Mm-hmm. Now, this is at least in part as to why the NFL decided to change its tune by stopping the administration of this test as part of an overall audit uh, of all assessments taken at the combine, right? And that just happened, right? I mean, this January happened last this week. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. Janu- well, January of this week. Well, well, the, the, the combine is going on right now, yeah. Uh, now, however, the teams may still have the option to use this test if they choose, right? Although the league could basically ban this practice entirely after this year's combine. So what's interesting here is that in spite of this sort of drop of the one of the tests, it's a bunch of other IQ tests and, uh, and behavior tendencies tests that they're doing on prospective players, right? So I'm reading, I'm reading you guys a few of them. There's the player assessment test, which is a computerized test that measures attributes like aggressiveness alongside cognitive traits. There's the athletic intelligence quotient, uh, which emphasizes sp- spatial awareness and fast-paced decision-making. Mm-hmm. There is the Stratwine athletic profile, which rates a dozen performance traits such as composure and grit. And there's also the human resources tactic, which uses testing that, p- that purports to gauge, among other things, an, athle- an athlete's love of the game. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> I love that one. Uh, you love the game. <laughs> the challenge is that many of these tests have never been peer-reviewed, right? So we're doing all these tests. We're making a lot of decisions here, something that's not even peer-reviewed. Then, of course, you have all the team interviews, which can, in some cases, be purposely hostile to see how prospects will react. Probably one of the most infamous cases was in 2010 when Miami Dolphins GM asked Des Bryant, who ended up being a, a receiver for the, for the Cowboys, if his mother had been a prostitute. Something there was that, all these kind of hazing questions that I, are, I, I was not familiar with this. Were you to familiar see how they react? Somewhat, Did you, know? yeah. you, did, you were? Okay. To see how they react, yeah. So, um, courage or cringe, NFL not doing enough to end biased test practices, or if you're going to be paid millions, teams have the right to fully vet their investments. Mm. Oh, wow. So you mm, added the Bobby. second part of it in there. Ah, I like how I threw that in there. Yeah, right? yeah. Is that the original? Hold on a second. Uh, <laughs> ooh. He prepared um, for something else. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so, so, so we're doing Courage or Cringe basically on the, on the, on the NFL, right? Dropping the Wonder League. Dropping the Wonder League, but, but not fully doing a full ban and, and still having these other types of IQ-based tests that we put in place. Um, okay, I, I'm just going to go Courage on them dropping these stupid tests, mm-hmm. okay? Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, that's how I feel. Right. Um, I'm an old-school uh, football fan, and, uh, uh, you know, I look at Major League Baseball and I'm like, the issue they're going through. I think, I mean, I'm going off the topic real quick, but I feel like the reason why Major League Baseball is not as a national sport is one of the reasons why it's because there's all these statistics involved in the game. It's too much, too many statistics. They're not invested in what the game looks like on television and, and, and you know, for the fans, right? Football. Too much money ball is what you're saying. Yeah. Football doesn't need any of that crap. They don't need to test a fucking guy's <laughs> IQ. I don't give a shit, okay? If he's his wonder lick, his. Wonder, whatever, you know, right? Wonder bread. Whatever. You don't care who don't he's licking. Don't care who he's licking. Lick whoever you want, as long as it's a consenting adult. There and, you go. Uh, I like it. Uh, I want to see you play football, okay? Right, and you right. can't really measure a lot of those things. I mean, the tape doesn't lie. Is what people say in football, okay? Tape doesn't lie. 
They're football players. You can just tell we're football players. If you want to ask, and but then again, I mean, listen, it's your business. You are a multi-billion-dollar corporation. These are million-dollar jobs you're interviewing for. If people are going to ask you stupid questions and aggressive questions, I mean, they have the right to ask those questions. I mean, you know, I guess I think it's I think it's a waste of time. I think it's silly. I don't think you're proving anything. You did mention something very interesting in there about how the white players gained a lot of draft stock from yeah. these Wonderlick tests. I mean, there's an inherent bias that you know the NFL GMs and front offices think that white players are not as athletic as black players and so they're, they're smarter um, so we're going to test them we're going to take them more into consideration that's very interesting that they got a bump um, but there's an inherent bias but you know I feel I feel bad because white players are seen as not as athletic but they're seen as smart and then black players are seen as athletic but not as smart and you know none of that's really true you know what I mean right. I mean there's a kid named Joey Hobart uh, he played. Uh, he plays for. Well, I think he transferred out of Washington State, but we saw him in high school, and he's one of the greatest athletes I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, that kid is fucking amazing. So, yeah. you know, all these biases that people have, he's a white drop kid. Him. He's a white kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's uh, Billy Joe Holbert's son who mm-hmm. played for uh, um, uh, the Ra- Raiders for a little bit, whatever. And you know, I, good family. I like those people, but Joey was. I mean, just I should yeah. just like jump over like fifteen people and catch a pass with his. You know his his ear, and you know yeah. do a backflip and score a touchdown. I mean, the kid's amazing. Mm. So, Bobby, how do you feel about the combine in general, though? What's your What's your take on the combine? I think you I got think a lot of people have that similar kind of mentality, which is like they actually think that look at the tape. Like you're trying to gauge gauge these athletes based on some the of these these exercises. You know, Tom Brady made more famously. You know, you, yeah. you look at the guy trying to run, and, and you look at him all together, and <laughs> he looks like crap, and then turns to be the best quarterback ever. I think you got to look at the tape, and I think the pro days are probably more important than the combine is. I don't know if it, your audience is familiar, but yeah, explain that. So each school uh, will have a, a pro day where their players will compete in basically a combine, but it's run by the school, and it's in a much more comfortable setting. You got to understand that these guys are flying to Indianapolis. Um, it's a strange, you know, strange sure. stadium, strange lag, receivers. Look, yeah. They and now they now the NFL has made it a TV show, so they bumped it up to like right. you know six o'clock in the evening. They're sitting around all day long. You got to run the forty. And by the way, running a forty is not really a, a gauge of how fast you are. Okay, first of all, who runs forty yards straight straight in you know, a straight line in football? Not very many people do, right? right? It's also a very defined precision skill that you have to pay professionals to teach you how to run a 40 properly. Mm-hmm. Very few guys can roll out of bed and run a 4-3 or 4-4. Four, four. Right. Most guys need very specific training for like two or three months before they run that 40, right? So none of it's really real. So the pro days are more indicative of who, you know, they're like skills and drills kind of things they're going to do anyway. So you asked me how I feel about the combine. Listen, again, this is a billion-dollar corporation. You run on it. If you want to make these guys do cartwheels in, in tutus, to see who's the best football player, all right, go for it. It's your business. Mm. But personally, I don't think it's you know, worth a damn. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think it's just a huge platform, the combine now. I mean, you yeah, got people in the stands. You got great sure. marketing. You got, well, you it's know. Great, it's a great marketing for the draft, right? I mean, my boys, people are super excited. For sure. My boys showed me, like, um, just yesterday, the day before, one of my sons was showing me the 40-yard for all the all the, all the the wideouts. He was like, you know, from, from slowest to fastest, you know, and it's like it becomes some currency in the social mm-hmm. space, right? It's sure. like, look how fast this person is. And there was even a controversy around, I forget where the player was from that um, what was ha- on social media they were saying that they actually stopped the clock at the wrong time and my son showed me like the counter in slow-mo and the kid crosses the line it was like 4.1 blazing speed right <laughs> That's impossible. but they gave him like a four well I think Bo Jackson ran a 4-1 something or 4-2 at some point right back in the day but like 
Um, but they, you know, he kind of like they, they stopped the clock like after he had passed the line instead of as he was passing the line. Right. Anyway, it was a difference of like a couple of mils, so they gave him like four three something, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so uh, all of that is making this thing a big platform, and it's mm-hmm. and it's big and visible. Look on this one, I, I it, it's kind of tricky because I think I'm a cringe on this piece, and the reason for that is that it seems like dropping the wonderlick is a way of appeasing critics because you're still retaining all of these other kind of methodologies and they tend to vary by team. So for me, I look at this piece and I go, well, would any of this be happening? Like, would any of it be happening if, it, if they hadn't had the recent, whenever it was we talked about the last time, I forget, when we talked about the, 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 the um, there was something that the black players were suing or the, or oh, the yeah, black yeah, players yeah. In, the, oh. in, the, in the football, they were suing yeah. because of some of these testings. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really, I'm very skeptical about them taking a hard look at this thing and actually making a move that's for the team in the league as opposed to making a bit of a PR move. Okay. So I think that's why I'm you a cringe. Yeah. I also wonder if um, there isn't some wisdom, because I agree with you, I'm old school in that regard too. I want people to play and they play well and they show it and let the tape show it and all their achievements and all that stuff. But I do wonder about some of these things like, um, you know, hand-eye uh, coordination and, you know, uh, decision-making skills and all that stuff. If it doesn't, in a way, um, just give you the sense, if you had to pick between two people who are identical on the tape, let's say, they got very similar records, but one of them's got that edge in that particular thing, is it not an additional consideration that I, as a coach, should have, right? So I, I'm a cringe because I feel they're dropping it for PR, but, you know, semicolon, I just wonder about would right. we want, if I'm the coach, would I want something in addition to the tape? And I don't know. There's a lot of cool stuff out there, so maybe it's worth looking at, but um, I'm not sure. I, I, but ultimately, I'm a uh, crazy that's, that's a good point you made. Just having additional information for a player, you know, and you may not necessarily like uh, not draft and what have you because of it. You just If you have two identical players, you know, but we, because it's become such a show. Yeah. That's why I was. Well, put, uh, put, put it to, put it to you this way: There's, uh, you know, fifty-two man roster, thirty-two team. It's like fifteen hundred players total in the NFL, mm-hmm. and you have to wonder that's the that's who ends up there. But the number of players, including your son, who could be potential, you're looking at thousands and thousands and thousands oh, of sure. people, and I I just can't believe that those fifteen hundred are just this gladiator type breed that like there's not even a. You know, it's like the second place is like way down there. I don't think so. I think there's a lot of really high quality folks. And in order to make a distinction beyond your 40 or whatever you did in high school, I just wonder if there's other dimensions to make that decision, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, but for most of these players, you have, you know, three to four years worth of tape of them playing. Yeah. I mean, let's let's not, let's not pretend like there's like a bunch of data that's already there about these each each one of these players, and especially the the players that are getting drafted. Let's be honest, most of them are going to get like really high quality tape of them playing, mm. right? You may have a couple of, of kids that are maybe from lower schools that, but these are people that are probably going to be walk ons initially, maybe try for a team, and then maybe get a shot of actually making the team. Look, I, I'm I'm with you in this case, more cringe than courage, because I do think it's more of a PR PR move. I also think there's a little bit of this that's going on where you have like old school people, uh, like a little bit of like, you know, here's the way that I interview interview things. It was funny. I was having this conversation with a, with a friend of mine um, and uh, she was telling me that one of her, well, like a sales manager that mm-hmm. um, that she had at one point had this habit that when they were going on sales call, like he would make the salesperson drive. And his whole thing about getting the salesperson drive because that's the way that he could assess how good or not the salesperson was. Like the stupidest thing you've ever heard. Okay. Right. But but it's like it's the kind of thing that you will hear all of these like old school people that had this thing where like, oh, you know, 
how I know people is good because of something that's unrelated to the job itself, but that was like their way of knowing whether or not they're good or not. I feel like some of these are in that category where people have all these other kind of issues that are, that are there that frankly, at the end of the day, if they're not really correlated to, let's actually use real data. Do any of these actually correlate to people being better players or not? And if the answer is no real high correlation, then why are we using it? And why is the NFL allowing this to, 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 to occur? That's my issue with it. Mm. I get their investment, but you have three to four years of a lot of gameplay. Yes. That I mean, it's not like these kids are walking in from high school or walking they've never seen anyone <laughs> before or they don't get scouted for years while they're in college. You see what I'm saying? Like that's, that's so what you're we, saying is maybe a, it's leftover from a time when you didn't have the same kind of availability of data and information. Because I, now if you're in high school – Man, you got like even you know, now the high school. Now you got under the radar. You got overtime. You got all these different things where like everything, you can see them from like Pee Wee League rivals. You have everything. I, I think to me these are all great elements that you can use to make decisions. You can use them for leverage for negotiations. You can use them for leverage to trade. You know, interest on one player or the other. Like those all feel like these just benefit the teams. And don't really benefit the players. Final thought, Bobby. Well, I, my final thought is all the testing is silly. You have the tape. Uh, you don't yeah. need you don't you don't need to measure. I mean, Joe Burrow's hands didn't measure nine inches. He's a pretty good quarterback. I think. Yeah, I think I think, he, I think I think he's okay. Right. Just keep him from getting sacked. How, way, <laughs> how right. did you know he was all right? Oh yeah, he did win win the, the actual national championship. Like there was also that point. You know, <laughs> he you could have looked at that and how <laughs> yeah. he did there. You know, yeah. see what I'm saying? He's like, pretty good. He's his, pretty good. But his overall, his wondering sucked though. Yeah, overall, he's pretty good. That's my point. It's like this is it's silly. All right, Jesus. Last one. Let's bring it home. Let's go. Courage or cringe? DeSantis defends scolding students over masks and, fin- and fundraisers off of it. All right. So, this is a fun one. So Governor DeSantis went viral for being an ass with kids. Jesus loves yeah. Governor DeSantis, by the way. Yeah. Just, uh, I try to be preview. less biased on my, on my T.O. This one, I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> did you really so. say he's being an ass or did you put it in there? I put it in there. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like he, I said, <laughs> you take that off. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Take it Get off. warm. Yeah. So Governor DeSantis went viral for being an ass with kids who were wearing masks during a briefing. And now he's fundraising from those efforts. Right. So what actually happened? So he was giving a press conference in Tampa. Right. When Governor Robin DeSantis appeared. To be very irritated to see high school students who were visiting the school uh, that were standing behind the podium wearing masks. Now, to them, he said, you do not have to wear those masks. Please take them off. Honestly, it's not doing anything. We've got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to, you want to wear it, fine. But this is ridiculous. And, of course, like pointing at the kids as he's doing them. And she was pretty fired up. So he went viral, you know, for what many people call him being a bully. So what do you do when you get called as a bully? Is you turn around and you fundraise from it. <laughs> right. So his campaign put out an email attempting to spur donations. And in quotes, before the truth is silence, where DeSantis blasted the, and in quotes again, corrupt and biased legacy media for chastising him over his claims that masks are political theater. And they also created actually a hype video over his controversial brief scolding the students, right? Now, to all of this, DeSantis says, while in Tampa, I told a group of students, uh, uh, I told a group of students masks, uh, while in Tampa, I told a group of students masks <laughs> were ridiculous. And, and they didn't have to wear them if they didn't want to. Predictably, the leftist propagandists in our media had a meltdown and called me a bully for allowing children to breathe fresh air. Uh, let's not forget that just 36 hours ago, Joe Biden and the radical Democrat hypocrites were par- parading around in the Capitol without masks and without so much as a peep from the corporate press, but suddenly permitting children to unmask is unacceptable. Uh, now, of course, the Senate does have a history of being anti-mask mandates. He actually outlawed, outlawed Florida schools from passing local mass mandates for students, even battling with some of the Florida's largest school districts and the Biden administration over it. So courage or cringe, DeSantis showing us how to move past the mass political theater 
or never miss a good opportunity to create some controversy and rile up the base. Bobby's flexing, so this is going to be. This is going to be. <laughs> uh, I don't know what's going to happen. But speaking of not bias, I, I gave a fairly biased uh, uh, description of, 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 the, of the story. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I okay. This is a really. Um, all right. So I feel like first of all, calling him a bully. Yes, is a bit aggressive. Okay, and him saying that the uh, I think I forgot the word. I think he's called the leftist socialist propagandist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. silly as well. We have gotten to this situation where both sides of the aisle cannot have a reasonable conversation without using playground insults, and it's driving me fucking nuts. Okay, okay. Was he a bit hypocritical to kind of chastise the kids? A bit. But he did say, hey, that you can wear them if you want to. Did he need to say anything to them was, at all? Was it in that tone? Did you see the video? I saw the video. He was maybe a little bit more aggressive. He was flippant. A tad bit. A tad bit. He was flippant. He didn't have to say shit to those kids. He could have just let them wear their damn mask and move on with his life. But he did want to do a little bit of, uh, you know, theater of his own. Mm. Um, and But he... <laughs> But we don't have to call him a bully. He wasn't like, take those fucking masks off, you little pricks, and all that kind of stuff like that. I'm sorry, I'm cursing too much. I curse a lot. Um, you know, but he didn't tell them to take those masks off or I'll, you know, kick you out of here or whatever. He didn't need to say anything to them at all. But we don't need to jump on each other with these playground insults. We can have an honest conversation. You know what I mean? And what happens is we we um, we just kind of we descended to the stupidity of, you know, of just name calling. We're not really dealing with the issue. You know what I mean? And so... Okay, so I have to answer courageous or cringe, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what's the question again? <laughs> that's, that's the game. So was, he it, was, was it courageous or, or, or cringeworthy for DeSantis to basically tell these these students, in your words, to take them off very nicely, politely, <laughs> and then fundraise from that from that effort? Oh, damn! Oh, that's a good one. Uh, courageous or cringe? Tell them. It's a safe space, Bobby. Don't yeah, worry about okay. it. It's okay. I don't space. know what to say. I, don't I, know how to I always all, upset Hesu. All we're going to do is just judge you, so it's fine. Well, <laughs> um, I'm a... You want to say courage. I know, I know you want to say courage. I don't. I want to say I'm cringing that... Okay, you know, I'm going to cringe on this. Mm, I'm going to okay. cringe on this because... He didn't need to say anything to those kids at all. He could have just walked up there and said, you know, guys, masks are optional, okay? So just so you know that. And then turn around and did his address to the people. And instead, he decided to take his pause, say what he said, right? probably a bit too aggressively, to children. They're kids. Right, they're kids. You know, they're not adults. They're kids. They're just doing what they were told to do by somebody else, probably. Right. You know what I mean? He said it very aggressively. They turned around and... T- and you know, of course, the left was, did say he called him a bully, which he didn't need to do. He sees that opportunity and additionally to mm-hmm. then fundraise. So I'm going to go right. cringe. Got it. Yeah, I'm All with right. I, I'm with All you. Right. I'm with you too. And I, I actually I think the characterization of him as this you know kind of um, you know political monster, which I definitely have seen out there, is overwrought and maybe not necessarily true. However, if I look at the players in this story, you've got DeSantis, you've got the kids, you've got the media, mm-hmm. right? And the initiator of this, to your point, was DeSantis. Mm-hmm. I think if he would have inverted the order, if he would have said, start to your point, it's like, hey, guys, just so you know, you have the option personally about whether or not you want to wear masks, okay? I don't believe that we're at a point with Omicron based on the data that you need to, but it's your, it's your decision. I think if he would have done that and then would have had the – you know, kind of he's an ogre, bully, whatever, I would have gone courage on this story. But mm-hmm. I think for me, it's the order of the way that he put things because he's the prime mover in the argument, right? He's the initiator of this thing. Mm-hmm. And the way that he started off, now you could, you know, argue uh, generously that maybe it was just a slip or whatever, or you could say, now this is a habit and this guy's just a monster. Um, I choose to be in the first camp, not the latter camp. 
But nevertheless, just on the data that we have, I think that ending on but it's your choice kind of destroys the argument, right? Because you're basically making a kid, to your point, young person who's very impressionable, who wants to do what's right. You're making them feel like they're starting off being wrong, right, in the beginning. And that's really what caught the attention, I think, of the press, who is no fan of DeSantis's. Mm -hmm. And kind of snowballed this thing in general. So I'm a cringe on that, but it's a, it's a fine cringe because I think it's a question of order. And mm-hmm. I do agree with you that I think the whole playground antics is something that we got to move fast from. Yeah. So that's me. So I would I would put. Um, Let I'm me guess. Yeah, I'm definitely cringe. And, and I will start it with this way: if that was my daughter up there, and he talked to her that way, I will have words with that dude. Mm. Because let's let's how we started, how we ended that sentence. You don't have to wear those masks. Please take them off. That's how it started. Yeah. It ended with, so if you want to wear it, fine, but this is ridiculous. You're talking to kids, man. You're talking to kids. Like, talk to an adult that way, fine. And you say, hey, we have, like, Democrats here all wearing masks, and even though we just had a State of the Union, like, I get get that point. That's okay. All I'm saying, if it was my daughter up there, and he was talking to her that way, and pointing his finger, I'm like, dude, like, who are you talking to? How old were those kids up there? They were in in high school. So Mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know, 15 to 17 Mm -hmm. or... I don't know. High okay. school kids. There is there is They're high school kids. There is I mean there there is a these are still kids. If it was yeah. if he was wearing a TikTok shirt while doing it, I would be like <laughs> no one would be happy with him. See what I'm saying? It's like yeah. dude, these are kids. Yeah. And and the thing that bothers me about it is that this is the opposite of the example you were giving earlier about um about the 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 priest, right? Saying, mm-hmm. "Hey guys, just so you know, right. the the mandate has changed. We're going to take him off. If you feel comfortable, keep him on. It's fine." So people will be like, "Great, taking him off." So people may not may not feel comfortable, right? But but using it as a moment to to chew kids out and then tell them, but fine if you want to wear it, it's ridiculous. Like, the, are you creating an environment where you, as the adult, right? You make any kid and not feel just any okay? adult, not just any. He's adult. the governor. <laughs> You're the governor. Like, That's uh, some authority there. So yeah. when someone says bully, I don't know how take his name out of the conversation. If someone describes this is what happened, and I'm just reading you exactly word for word of what he actually said, and who was the the recipient of the of the of the message? Forget how the how everyone else framed it. How do you not say an adult talking to children that way is not going to be considered a bully mm. or bullyish behavior? Mm. Or you're just and this is a, this is without this is without the finger pointing, which he was, and like you're still an adult. Like just think about that. If you're a kid, like a young kid, and and that's and that's what I said. Like, how set do you not have issue with it? Set him straight, Bobby. Um, I just I guess I guess I, I guess I fed my children to the wolves over the years. I don't know. I I it wouldn't have been that. I wouldn't have been that, you know, offended by. I would have rolled my eyes. I'm like, okay, here he goes again. I, my, I guess my initial feeling would have been like, very hypocritical because you talk about, you know, freedom, 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 freedom. Right. Well, then let them wear, have them have the freedom to wear yeah. their stupid well, masks. And that's my second point of it, right? Mm-hmm. right? Of course, my kid would have been looking at him like, I already know he's going to say something like that. And so I'm going to keep my, I'm going to four mask. I'm going to have masks with my eyeballs. <laughs> <Right>. Just to, <laughs> just just to, to see what he says. But that's my point. That's, and that's my second issue with this, right? You've been, the, the, I mean, like, you're not against masks, which you continue to say. You're for people having the parents having the choice. Right. For what another children should wear a mask? Well, I'm assuming some of those parents had the choice right. for the kids to wear a mask, and then now you're going to chastise the kids for wearing a mask because they're going to be in this photo yeah, op. And that's you. and that's a good point. That Lo- makes no sense to me. And lost in here, just to kind of play his defender for a second, mm-hmm. lost in all of this is the fact that it is true that there has been a significant amount of theater around mask wearing. Period. I, I sure. really do think that, in particular, those who do, those who don't. I gave to you right before the State of the Union. I talked about this on the last show. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Biden gets off of Marine One. This is before it got lifted. He gets mm-hmm. off of Marine One, the helicopter. He comes out wearing his mask mm-hmm. outside with the propellers going a thousand miles an hour. He's wearing his and he walks up to the Marine to salute him. The Marine isn't wearing his. So and this is before yeah. the thing got lifted. Right. So. There is some of this theatrics in there that I think people look at and go like, wait a minute, this doesn't seem authentic and real. And that's lost in his argument, but it is a point. Bobby. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know how much is theater. I don't know how much is for, for show. I know that I, I am, you know, I've gone to restaurants and I've, you know, you're walking in the restaurant with your mask on. And as soon as you hit the dining, the dinner table, you take it off. But what's the difference in the air that we're breathing right now? Um, Is it really safer? I don't know. I guess my point is. I don't know if it's theater or we're just all just trying to do the best we can. Social convention, you know I mean? maybe. Social convention is what I mean. The, maybe but, not theater. But the yeah. I think that's a great example because I've heard that argument a lot. People say, well, you know, that makes no sense. You sit down, you take it off. So, like, why What's have this, right? Well, the reason why that happened, let's, let's rewind, is that people were trying to figure out a way to keep businesses open. Right. And to get these businesses back on, on, the, on the grid because some of them had actually failed during 2020. Sure. So this is a compromise. Now, is it the best compromise? No. The, the best or the best thing to, to avoid anyone getting affected? No. The best thing would be no one in restaurants. If you really want to stop the, the right. spreading, and, and you, have no one in restaurants. And you just explain the rationale, but not the effectiveness. That's the well, issue. But yeah, but, but that's, that's kind of the point. So then, yeah, so then, so, I mean. so then the, there's an in between. Okay, well, do we try to limit some of the spread in, 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 the, in between moments? Okay, that sounds kind of reasonable. Right, so you see what I'm saying? Like to me, it's of actually course. rational how we get to it, but we we then act like, but then throw the whole thing out. No, I don't. See, I see never want. I never want. I never say throw the whole thing out. I'm the kind of person. I didn't. It didn't need to make sense to me per se. I'm going to do the best I can as a member of the right, of society right. and community. You say wear a mask over here. I wear a mask. You yeah, say don't do it. I don't do it. Right, Whatever. Right. I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I I'm not the kind of person who's going to go banging on somebody's door or yell at a cashier because I just want some toothpaste from Target. I'm going to wear the mask and get. I'm going to get out of here. Sure. You know what I'm saying? I'll I'll take my mask off when I get to the car. I'm like, yeah, okay. yeah, no. So this is why. Look, my my reaction to it is 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 this way. I think it, I I think him being the instigator. Those two main points. I feel like when when, it's, when you're dealing with kids, it just feels like just the wrong way to deal with kids. Sure. And it goes directly against what his public stance has been about masks in general being something that should be you know people's personal choices. That is a rational, reasonable argument that you've just made and one that was entirely predictable too at the same time. So great, <laughs> and, great, uh, great job. And third, and third for being an ass. <laughs> Say one, one last time. Uh, Bobby, super to have you on the show, brother. Really appreciate you coming here and, uh, you know, like I said, digging all the work that you've been doing and looking forward to what's coming next. So um, how can folks, uh, you know, follow your work, keep in touch, that kind of thing? Well, I'm on, I'm, I'm on Instagram, not TikTok, <laughs> uh, uh, at Bobby Figgas, F-I-G-G-A-Z. I'm on Twitter at, uh, at B Spears Jr. Um, you can purchase Bedlam, The Life and Mind of Earl Sedgwick at uh, Amazon.com, most conveniently, of course, because Jeff owns everything. That's right. And, um, yeah, uh, that's probably about it right there. Beautiful. We'll put all that information in the show notes. And, uh, again, great to have you on the show. Jesus, any words of wisdom? Bobby, it was thoughts? a pleasure, man. Thanks, thanks for joining us. But this, just being in person is actually great, right? This is great. It's, it's nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. I like it. It's nice, even, so, if, thank e- you. even if we didn't wear masks doing it. But whoa, it's whoa, okay. whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I can say that now because, uh, uh, you know, we just lifted it. We just lifted it. Exactly. Awesome. All right, well, if you're hearing our voices, that's time to subscribe and uh, share this uh, episode with a friend. Tell folks about Bobby Spears Jr., about TDR, etc. And we will see you next time on another episode of the Diversity Remix.
you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.